Welcome to the 36th episode of Season 2 of the Indotechno Podcast. Salamat datang sumunya. I'm Alan Hallowell, founder of tech consultancy Gizmo Advisors and venture partner at Alpha JWC Ventures. It is near impossible to go so much as one day without coming across news flow around mobile gaming. Whether it is the headlines that we read about the pitched battles over what app stores can charge game developers to play mobile games on their devices, or new measures taken in some markets to regulate approvals, or even control the number of hours that can be played per day. Indonesia remains one of the fastest growing mobile games markets of any populous country in the world. Mobile games should generate in excess of 2 billion US dollars in Indonesia this year alone. Today, we're extremely pleased to have join us Pak Arif Widyasa, founder of the country's largest games developer, Agate. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule today, Pak Arif. Hi, Alan. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's really a pleasure for me to be here. It's great to have you. Now, Arif, when we think of great games development capabilities, we generally think of countries such as China, Korea, the US, even Scandinavia. For instance, China probably has more than 200,000 games developers, and Indonesia maybe has 1,200. Why isn't Indonesia a gaming powerhouse? Wow, you started off with a very, very hard question. I see two angles to look at. The first one is what we call a talent capability gap, and the second one is what we call a supply funding gap. The first one, I could just give some analogy. When we start Agate 10 years ago, I met with a lot of big games company founders from Korea, Japan, and US. For example, a very big Korean mobile game company said that we remind them of what Korean been 10 to 15 years ago. So we have this gap. And then when I met with Final Fantasy, the Square Enix early team, he said that seeing us remind them when Square Enix just began. It's 25 years ago. And then when we met the US company, he said that seeing us with the size of our industry, we are really, really small. We are off the map. So I think that the talent capability gap is naturally because the industry is just started in Indonesia. And second angle, the supply funding gap. For example, in Indonesia, if you accumulate all the sales of the Indonesian industry, it's really, really small, mainly because the amount of investment per year in game development in Indonesia, our data says only 3 million per year. If you compare it with Vietnam, they invest 15 million per year. And China, they invest up to 5 million per year. So those two are the main reasons why we are still not the gaming powerhouse. So Arif, let's take this question forward then into the future. What would be the most important driver of the creation of a strong games developer ecosystem? Would it be universities offering more majors and courses in development, or is it some other factor? I think it's always two sides. It's the university to produce the talents and also the industry to absorb the talents. And they have to be growing at the same pace. Because if not, the universities will try to produce a lot of talent. And then after four years, they see that there is no industry to absorb the talent. And then they will cancel the majors. So it needs to be grown on the two sides in parallel. Understood. Very clear. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. Yes. Uh, they can commit resources to educating young developers. But if there's not a lot of uptake in the industry, then they could discontinue that. Is that correct? Yes. Got you. Now, as the largest gaming company in Indonesia, I assume we are committed to developing various parts of this ecosystem. What would you say are the two most important parts to develop as far as Agate goes and why? 
for the past 10 years, we have two important things to develop. The first one is talent. The second one is what we call a company stage of development. The talent one, we actually have what we call an academy program. Now we train around 2,000 students per year, working with around 60 universities to also help them build their games curriculum, bring some teachers to them or train the teachers. That's the talent part of the equation. And the other one is the company part, because in a natural state of the game ecosystem, the game development company actually grows very natural. They start with a very, very small team. And then when they have some success in the game, they scale the team. That's the stage that we want to have in Indonesia. But we also want to make the safety net for any entrepreneur that wants to join the game industry because it's a very, very hard and risky industry. So what we do is we build an incubation ecosystem. We have incubation programs in partnership with Telkom that bring around 200,000 USD capital per company as seed funding. And that's what we've done in the past. For the next five years, we are only focusing on one, the funding. So now if you see on the ecosystem, for funding up to 200K, there's already a lot in Indonesia. But for funding above 200K, there's none. So a few weeks ago, we introduced what we call Agate Skylab Fund where we fund Indonesian game developer up to 1 million. And that's what we have building ecosystem part. Fantastic. I assume this idiom translates across religions. We have a saying that God helps them who help themselves. The company is really throwing itself into helping the industry grow, and that's very reassuring. Now, on the topic of Agate, it's now in its 13th year of operations as a gaming company, I believe. I assume the world was all PC games when you started the company. And now it's nearly all mobile. What have been the largest changes for Agate during this period? The biggest change is actually one of the mistakes that we made. Everybody's doing transition in mobile in 2012-2014 timeframe. But when we do transition to the mobile, we think that the collaboration between Nokia and Microsoft should be big. Because in Indonesia at the time, everywhere is Nokia phone. And we decided to just jump to the bandwagon. We become one of the top developers in the Nokia Microsoft ecosystem. But when they close down, we need to restart everything. Definitely big changes, but in terms of development, developing online PC games with online mobile games not really different. Technically, it's still easy to catch up. But the largest thing is that when we pick the wrong train, jumping from the Nokia Microsoft train to the Android and iOS ecosystem, it takes some relearning. So we kind of launched two years off of our lifetime. I like the analogy of jumping from one train to another. I'm thinking about Harrison Ford and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, continuing the comparison between PC and mobile games, has our business model changed dramatically since the beginning? For instance, how long would it take for you to develop a PC game when you guys started and at what cost? And how long would a successful title last? And on the flip side, how do these values compare with developing a mobile game today? Generally, we have two game business models. The first one is what we call premium games where users just buy the game and then they play. And then the second one is what we call the online free-to-play game, usually because the second one is way more complex. Even in the early days of Agate, we actually do this too. For the first one, the transition is not really that big because what we do is we transition from the Flash ecosystem back then. We built game for web-based Flash to more PC console. Technically, there's a lot of change in some of time. Usually, during the Flash era, we built one game in less than three months. But when we go to the PC console type of game, for one game, we need at least two years. So that's maybe the big gap. Budget-wise, it's also scale. But in terms of risk, 
this kind of business is still a very, very low risk business. That's one part of it. And then the second one on the online game business, it's also not really much different in terms of scale. But for example, our previous web social games, we built in around one and a half years. And then they have a lifetime of around four years until we close it down. In mobile, in some of development time, it's not really that big uh, difference. Also, in around one and a half year, we're able to launch. But the life cycle in mobile is shorter. So it's hard for us to maintain a good game even for three years. Usually two years, we already need to sunset it out. Very fascinating. So definitely very different drivers, at least on game lifespan between PC, console, and mobile. So taking the question a step further, Arif, what percent of revenues today comes from mobile, PC, console, and then others? Actually, we have what we call a B2B business where we do games for others like work for hire or we do gamification consultation or building the games. If we count the B2B, it depends on whether we launch a good game this year or not. But at the moment, it's around 60% on our entertainment side of the business, 40% on the B2B side of the business. But we have a very, very good launch. It could be like 80 to 90% on the entertainment side. On the entertainment side, it also depends on whether we have a good launch. For example, in 2018, when we launched our console game, it's actually doing pretty well. 70% of revenue just from one game. Interesting. I think you beat me to my next question. When I was Chief Strategy Officer at C Limited, our top title on our Garena Gaming platform was probably 85% of all revenues. Is our revenue concentration similar with our hero game taking almost all of revenues and then the long tail being the rest? What is our revenue structure between top title and rest? It's actually very, very similar. Maybe the main difference is that we still don't have what we call a hit game. We actually have an internal measurement. We call it success game or a hit game. Success game able to make 10x return. The hit game is the one that able to make more than 100 times returns in terms of scale of the revenue. Because we only have a success kind of games, usually the maximum concentration of revenue that those games could help is around 70%, if I recall correctly. But yes, one good game could take majority of the revenue during that year. Understood. Now, you talked about a little bit the B2B business, but what exactly do we mean when we say we have a B2B2C model? Basically, you are doing game design for a third-party developer and then delivering it to them. They are maybe refining it further and then delivering it in turn to the end gamer. Is that correct? Yes, partly correctly. But for example, we build games for advertising for a big corporate in Indonesia. We build games for training or learning for frontline employees. And is that a profitable business or how do you think about it relative to your own self-developed games that you market yourselves? That's a great question. The B2B business is a very profitable business. Why we take this B2B business? Mainly because when we start, the capability gap is there and there is no way we are able to plow our way to build the capability using venture capital money just to learn. So that's why we created this business to be able to have a training ground for our team to start to build more simple games, start to learn about how to experiment on the game design. Yet we also still build a division that able to generate revenue while we're learning. So that's the main reason we have a B2B business. Understood. Now, you've mentioned that some of our games are available on console. Do we view that as one of our largest opportunities or over time, is that likely to decline as a percentage of revenues? How do you think about console gaming? 
we group console and PC premium game as one group. It's still growing like 1%, 2% per year in terms of the market itself. But as an industry, it's not really where the growth is. The reason why we have that business is because we want to get accustomed with the platform. And as a business itself, it's not really that risky. So we have an internal collision when we do what we call a premium game, console PC business. When we invest X, the worst case it could become is half of X. But the best case it could become is 10x. That is the general calculation of the premium business. It's still mildly profitable, not high risk, but also, yes, no growth potential. Understood. Now, I used to get this question a lot when I was still running strategy at C Limited and Garena. How are Indonesian mobile gamers different than their regional and global peers? Do they prefer a certain game format? Do Indonesians like the more violent games? Do they like more anime-oriented games? Culturally, how do they compare with, I don't know, a Vietnamese gamer or a Chinese gamer? Are there any differences in that regard? Good question. It's fairly fragmented. What we call Indonesian is a mixing pot, where the kind of very, very Chinese-like Three Kingdom game could be successful, or a very, very Western game, PUBG, could also be successful. So it's really a melting pot. Okay. So my quick review earlier today of Android game titles in Indonesia, according to survey firm App Annie, reveals the top five titles to be number one, Higgs Domino Island, number two, The Baby in Yellow, three, Angle Fight 3D, four, Mobile Legends Bang Bang, and five, Fidget Toys Trading. What does that tell you about the average gamer in Indonesia? So there's two categories of the game. The first one is more a simple casual game. And the second one is more games that are already popular. It tells us that the average gamer in Indonesia wants to try games, but they have a limitation in their memory space, hard disk space on their phone. So they usually pick a game that they're able to download easily, maybe less than 100 megabyte size, because their phone specification probably on the low to mid end. That's one part of the requirement. And the second one is that they also follow what's popular. Understood. Do we have to design our games that cater to lower spec Android phones, given the relative lack of higher spec iOS and Android phones locally? It really depends. For example, like Garena and Moonton five years ago on the game development sites, focusing on low-end smartphones. So what they do is that they bring a proven gameplay, mobile gameplay in the case of Moonton, or the Battle Royale gameplay in the case of Garena, but able to be played in a very, very low-end phone. And that strategy proven to be a very, very well-executed strategy. But that strategy already done. And what I see in the market in the past three years, everybody's doing that. It's actually already become a requirement. Now, Arif, do you ever see Indonesia itself delivering a new mobile gaming genre? With the current organic growth rate of our industry, maybe for the next five years, the answer is not. Because at the moment, the whole industry is still catching up on the capabilities and inventing or experimenting on a new category is not really in the horizon, at least for the next five years. Understood. So what has been our most successful games title, Adagate, in Indonesia? And what factors, as you think about it, went into its success? At the moment, our most successful title is a game we call Memories. It's a choose-yourself adventure game, mainly targeted for a female audience. We are using anime style of visuals. Basically, we are able to fit what we call market demand gap. So there's a gap in the market on what we call an automate game, but 
using a free-to-play monetization design. Because if you see all the dating or choose-yourself adventure games using a free-to-play game design, it's usually all Western visuals. And most of all the Eastern visual dating game is usually a premium game. So we see the gap and then we fill this gap. So that is one of the reasons why it's able to have this kind of success. Great. So it sounds like it's a good example of Agate leaving its own unique mark on gaming culture by adapting game formats to maybe reflect the unique interests of the local Indonesian gamers. Let's flip the coin, Arif. Have any of our titles succeeded overseas? Yes. Usually uh, our console games are usually way more successful overseas than in Indonesia. And particularly one of our titles, 99% of the sales come from overseas. Excellent. So that's a pretty strong proof point of being able to succeed outside of Indonesia. Now, I assume the entirety of our listening audience has read of the increasingly restrictive measures that China is taking around gaming addiction. The average gaming time now is up to some 80 minutes a day across most teenage groups. What is the level of gaming addiction in Indonesia, if there is any? I don't really see any data recently, but for example, like using our games, memories, most of our daily active users spend around 55 minutes per day on the games. We don't see that as an addiction because they have a choice to play. And usually in the game, we also try to limit their play time. I see increasing concern in parents. But on the other hand, also because the rise of esports and the rise of influencers that use popular streaming sites like YouTube earning money, there's also a rising support from parents for the kids to play games. Sure. One other angle that I have found very interesting is local politicians will ally themselves with gaming tournaments just to attract the younger voting demographic. And so it's quote unquote cool for a lot of politicians to support online gaming because it really speaks to that younger demographic. Arif, how did COVID impact our game usage and how did it impact our revenue or our P&L? Generally, COVID have a very positive impact. March 2020, the lockdown is happening everywhere. Our console games, quarter on quarter, jumped 200% in terms of sales. Our online games, in terms of time spent per day, jumped two times. So the lockdown brings the usage to our games. Two or three months after the lockdown, it's actually fluctuative because the early days, our revenue is increasing. But two or three months after the lockdown, the ARPU is going down. Basically, because people either try to save their money because of the uncertainty or because they already spend their savings. So that's why they don't want to spend more on the leisure activity. So it's up and down. And near the end of the year, it's going up again. So it's really up and down. But generally, it's a very, very good impact on the game industry. Gotcha. Now, moving on to something totally unrelated. Paradigms such as blockchain and NFT or non-fungible tokens, they seem to have a nice home in mobile gaming today. Do you feel that we are indeed in the midst of a massive paradigm change? And if so, how will things change for the average gamer in the blockchain and NFT era? This is a very interesting topic for me myself. At the moment, I come to a conviction that the answer is yes, there will be a massive paradigm change in the next maybe five to 10 years to become more mainstream. How this will change for the average gamer? Now, the average gamer have the power to really own the asset in-game and not really be influenced by just a single organization. Blockchain is the decentralized concept, but I think it could grow to become a bigger concept. For example, my sword in one of our MMO games could be able to be transferred to the other MMO game. 
I'm not really sure how this will fall out, but this could be the next big thing for games. Because the NFT aspect is a very, very fundamental part of the game. It's about ownership. Gotcha. Now, on the topic of next big things, what new directions can we expect from Agate going forward? Basically, we just try to find what's next for the game industry in the next five years. And at the moment, our main thesis is what we call collaborative play. Now, the game space is already filled with a lot of competitive games. And the ones that play this game is usually more hardcore gamers, already veteran gamers that play and want to play competitively with their friends. This competitive gamer at some point will become fatigue because competitive is very, very straining. They want more leisure, more casual play for social experience with their friends. And the collaborative play element might really fit well on the next new big demographic that will be growing for the next five years. Fascinating. A uh, very interesting picture of the future. One you're suggesting will become increasingly collaborative and maybe less competitive. That all makes sense. Well, Pak Arif, really enjoyed our conversation today. It's clear that Indonesian mobile gaming has so many fascinating dimensions to it, and there definitely seems to be a lot of growth in front of us. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you very much for having me, Alan. You're very welcome. We hope our listeners have enjoyed today's episode. As always, please consider sharing any feedback that you have about the Indotechno podcast with us. Terima kasih telah mendengarkan. Sampai jumpa lagi.